That's good worship, isn't it? You know, there's a difference between a worship leader and a worship pastor. Facts, and I want you to hear this. You know, I've been in a lot of church services and been involved in a lot of church government. And, and um, you know, a lot of folks can get up and sing and be a worship leader. But there's not a lot. It takes a special gifting. There's not a lot of folks that can be a worship pastor. A worship pastor pastors the people in worship, draws them into the throne room of God through worship. And nothing can do like that like corporate worship in Paxton and, and the worship team really did that. Let's give them another round of applause. That's good stuff. Well, I, I appreciate the opportunity today to come and share the word with you. For those of you who, who know me, um, you're probably looking at your watches because you're saying, you know, I know this guy's a lawyer and he's a politician and now he's a preacher. You know, lean over to your wife and say, honey, you better go turn the roast down. We may be here a while. But I'll, I'll try to get on through this word and get you out. I'm excited about what the Lord has, um, has laid on my heart uh, for you today. And I just hope and trust that you'll take truth from this, that it will be something that will bless your life. I don't want it just to be 30 minutes or an hour, hour and a half. Uh, uh, just, just, just some time when you're, um, when you're you know, kind of nodding your head and listening. I, I hope that, honestly, you will find some application in this. You'll find um, some truth that you can take with you tomorrow and, and through uh, the rest of your life, honestly. So if you'll turn your Bibles to Genesis, the 32nd chapter, Genesis 32. We're going to spend quite a bit of time in the Word because I'm really more of a teacher than I'm a preacher, by the way. If I'm any of that, I'm, I'm more of a teacher than a preacher. And so what I like to do is to get down into the Word. And how many, of you, how many of you know that, you know, the Word of God, it says in Hebrews, is living and powerful. It's capable of piercing the division between joint and marrow, soul and spirit. That means it has the ability, the Word itself has an inherent ability to get down where you live. You know, the essence, the division of joint and marrow, soul and spirit. That's the very inner part of you. And so if we'll open our hearts and our minds to receive the Word of God, I mean, just every day, if you just open it and just begin to, to read anywhere in the Bible, it has that capability so long as you're good soil, right? So long as you're allowing that seed to be planted into you, the Lord will bring about those changes that His Word wants to bring about. So I'm trusting that's what we're going to do today. What I want to talk to you today is about how to approach God in order to receive His highest blessing. How to approach God in order to receive his highest blessing. And what I'm talking about, I'm beginning from this, from this context, from this standpoint, and that is that I believe that God wants to bless his children. I believe he sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross to open up for us the blessings of his covenant. That whenever we move into relationship with God through the work of Jesus Christ, when we accept him as our Lord and Savior, and we move into that relationship, this whole covenant opens up. And the Bible really is a book of covenants. It's all about how God wants to come to us as our creator, as our father, as our provider, as our security, and he wants to pour out his blessings upon our children, right? Jesus said it's the father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's what he wants to do. Paul said that through this covenant, we receive all things that pertain to life and blessings, right? And so today, what I want us to recognize is that if we can move to the point, if we can get to the place where we can approach the Father, we can approach God with an expectation of receiving from Him, an expectation of walking in His covenant, then what we'll see is a dramatic change in our life, in every area of our life, in our finances, in our relationship, in our work, in, in everything that we do, in our spiritual growth. 
Whenever we begin to move into that relationship with him, then we begin to see a dramatic change in our life. Amen? And that's what draws people to Christianity. That's what draws people to the church. They should see in us, right, light and salt. They should see in us those things that attract them. God intended for his people Israel to be that that, uh, attraction. When he moved and walked into covenant with them, with Abraham, we're going to talk about Old Testament things in just a minute. When he moved into covenant with Abraham, he intended for, to bless Abraham so that he would be a blessing to others. Same thing is true with the church. God intends to bless us. He intends for us to walk in a spiritual dimension, a spiritual realm, of, a realm of blessings, so that people say, I want what you have. I want to be like you. You know, and I'll sing out, single out Pastor Jeff. You ever been in a restaurant with Pastor Jeff? You know, people want what he wants, what he has. That, that enthusiasm, that there's an attraction there that takes place. We should all walk in that level of blessing so that others are attracted to us. Amen? It's called lifestyle evangelism. Right? You don't have to go out there and start thumping the Bible and hitting them over the head. You know? You just begin to, to let the light of the Lord shine forth in us. And we see people being saved and brought to the kingdom. Amen? Okay, so you're in, you're in Genesis, the, 32, the 32nd chapter. As we look at how to approach God, we're going to look at two biblical figures, right? Two individuals in the Bible that you'll probably be familiar with. And they show us two different perspectives, two different methodologies, if you will, of how to approach God. In the Old Testament, we're going to look at Jacob, okay? Jacob is the grandson of Abraham, the son of, I, of, of uh, Isaac, And his name is changed in the passage that we'll read to Israel, right? So he becomes the father of Israel. The Israelis, the Israel nation, he becomes a father to them. But that's later on in his life. When we find him here in the 32nd chapter of Genesis, we'll read it here in just a minute, but to set the context, here's what's going on. Jacob has left home. He left Canaan. He left the promised land where Abraham and Isaac dwelt. He left there. And he went to Syria, essentially Pan-Aram. He went to Syria because he was afraid of his brother Esau. What he did was, from his very beginning of his life, even in his mother's womb, it says, his mother Rebecca, that something was going on inside of her womb. Of course, they didn't have sonograms, didn't know what was going on. What was happening was there were twin boys in there. And these two boys were struggling with each other and wrestling with each other, even in the womb. So she goes to God and she inquires of God and says, what's, what's going on? And the Lord said, there are two nations that are struggling in your womb right now. You have twins. There's two nations. And he goes on to say that the elder will serve the younger. So they're born. You probably know the story. And they're struggling to see who gets to come first, who gets to be the firstborn. Now, surely they don't know this in the womb. But the truth is, the firstborn among Israel. Uh, Israeli children among Jewish children get the birthright of the firstborn. You get the biggest inheritance. You get to move into the place of the father. It's a special place. So Esau comes out and he's born first. But Jacob is right behind him. In fact, he's grasping his heel. He's grasping the heel of his brother as, as they come out of the womb. Pretty wild, right? And from that point forward, we see Jacob wrestling and struggling to make his way. Jacob's entire life is all about performance. It's all about struggling. It's all about working to receive that which he thinks he's entitled to. Right? 
I don't know about you all, but that kind of resonates with me because I'm a performance guy, right? Not proud of that fact, but you know, I'm a performance guy. I grew up in the cattle business. My dad had the, had the sale barn over in Portales. We grew up under his hand, and my dad, you worked for everything that you got. I started working at the sale barn when I was eight years old. Made a dollar a day. I thought that was a lot of money. You know, didn't take any Social Security out of that for quite a while, so it was pretty good. You know, got to take home, take home the whole thing. And so, but I worked all my life. And so it was all about performance. And that's what it is with Jacob as well. He wrestles from the time he comes out of the womb. Then he wrestles with his brother Esau over that birthright. You all probably know the story. Esau comes in from the field and he's hungry. And Jacob's been cooking up a bowl of stew. And Jacob, Esau says, man, I'm hungry. And, and so would you give me some of that stew? And Jacob says, I'll trade it to you for your birthright. And Esau, not being the sharpest tool in the shed, right, said, deal. I'm about to starve to death. What good does my birthright do if I'm going to eat, if I'm going to die of, of hunger? Okay, do the deal. So he swaps his birthright. Later on, when it comes time for Isaac to bless the two sons, he's thinking he's going to bless Esau. And instead, Rebekah dresses Jacob up like Esau. Must have been a pretty hairy guy, by the way, because he dresses him in a goat skin, right? And Isaac rubs him and says, well, you, you feel like my son Esau, like a goat. He was apparently very red and very hairy. But anyway, so he dresses him and says, okay, I want that blessing. I want the blessing of the father. And so he says, all right. And he blesses uh, Jacob as if he were Esau. Esau finds out about it, threatens to kill Jacob, and so Jacob has to leave, leave home in order to keep from being killed by his older brother. He goes, and then he wrestles in Syria with his brother Laban. He wrestles for his wife, Rachel, and instead gets Leah. And then he wrestles with Laban about his flocks. He's wrestling the whole time until we get to this point right here in his life. Most commentators say he's 97 years old. Right here, Jacob is 97 when he wrestles with God, which is what we're about to read about. Now, if it's any consolation, he lives to be 147. <laughs> so, you know, 97 is about middle age, but he's, he's, he's more advanced in his life. And at this point right here, Jacob, who has been wrestling all his life, right, struggling all his life to gain acceptance, struggling all his life to gain what he thinks is owed to him and deserved to him, approaches God. Okay, so we're in Genesis, the 32nd chapter. We're going to begin in verse 22. Everybody there? And he arose that night and took his two wives, that's Rachel and Leah, his two female servants, and his 11 sons and crossed over the fort of Jabbok. He took them, sent them over the brook, and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone. Then Jacob was left alone. Now, how many times are we, is it necessary for God to get us alone? to get us by ourselves before he can deal with us on a one-on-one -on -one basis. And that's where Jacob is. He's all by himself. And he's left alone. And it says, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. I want to just pause here a minute. In the New King James, which is I'm reading from, that uh, this person, this entity with whom Jacob is about to wrestle, they identify as a man, but they capitalize M. Right? Amen. Is that how it is in your Bible? Capital M, man. And so he, he, he's wrestling with it. In the book of Hosea, Hosea references the same thing and says that he's wrestling with an angel of God. Okay? And then other places, it, it's indicated that he might have been wrestling with a pre-incarnate Jesus. However you look at it, 
whoever this figure is that Jacob is beginning to wrestle with is a representative of God. Okay, it's a physical form, a physical representation of God. And Jacob is getting ready to wrestle with him in order to be blessed. And goes on to say, Now when he, the, the, the man, saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. Okay, so what's going on here is that Jacob is approaching this representative of God. And he's saying, I want to be blessed by you. Now, you need to remember that Jacob was a descendant of Abraham. He was the son of Isaac. Jacob already was entitled to receive the blessing of the covenant. He was Just because he was born into that lineage. He was the grandson of Abraham. He was the son of Isaac. He had walked in that blessing already. In fact, if you'll see, the Lord blessed him the whole time he was in Syria. He's coming out a rich man with 11 sons, which is a huge blessing. He, he was a blessed man. He was entitled to receive the blessing of the covenant without having to go wrestle with God. But see, that's Jacob's nature. That's Jacob's temperament. That's Jacob's personality. Jacob thinks that the only way he can receive anything from God is if he does it in his own strength if he does it in his own ability. And so he's wrestling with this figure, and they're going back and forth, and Jacob won't let go. And the, and the representative of God, the angel of God, reaches down and touches his hip. And when he touches his hip, it knocks it out of socket, knocks it out of joint, so that from that point forward, for the rest of his life, another 50-some years, Jacob walked with a limp everywhere that he went. He had a reminder with every step that he took that the way he chose to approach God was in his own strength and in his own performance and in his own struggle every day. But Jacob receives the blessing. Let's read on. Beginning in verse 26, it says, And he, God, representative of God, said, let me go for the day breaks. And he said, Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he, the angel of God, said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. <clears throat> Let's stop here just a minute. The angel of God, Jesus, pre-incarnate Jesus, whoever this is, knew Jacob's name. <laughs> right? I mean, most questions, when God asks a question in the Bible, it's typically rhetorical. Right? It's not, it's not seeking information. He knows it. But, but he says, okay, what's your name? He's forcing Jacob to identify who he truly is, right? Who he truly is. And what Jacob says is, my name's Jacob. My name is supplanter. That's what that name means. My name is supplanter. My name is schemer. My name is swindler. Literally, my name is he who grasps the heel to make another one trip. <laughs> That's what's really what it means. He who grasps the heel to make another one trip. You know, it reminds me of that game we used to play, you know, whenever we were in, we were in, in uh, middle school, grade school. You know, you'd walk up behind somebody and you'd kick the back of their leg, you know, as they went and try to, try to cause them to, to trip. Right? You women are going, don't know what y'all talking about. The guy's going, yeah, I could do that. It's the funniest thing. Fall on his face. <laughs> That's Jacob, right? He's someone who sneaks up behind 
He sneaks up behind someone to take advantage of the situation. That's who Jacob has been. And the angel of the Lord is requiring him to confess that. He's requiring him to identify who he is. Jacob says, I'm a swindler, I'm a schemer, I'm a supplanter. And it's almost like, but I don't want to be that anymore. <laughs> you know, I don't want to be that anymore. I'm tired of the struggle. 97 years I've been doing this. I'm tired of the struggle. Will you bless me? Will you bless me? There's this other picture that I want us to see. Kind of pause here a minute to see this as well. I've always envisioned them wrestling around, struggling on the ground. But I really think what was happening is they were kind of struggling and wrestling like this. So that whenever the angel of the Lord reached down and touched Jacob's hip and knocked that hip out of socket, he still had to hang on to God in order to support himself. I mean, isn't that an interesting picture? He's hanging on to God. He can't hardly walk, but he says, I'll not let go until you bless me. Until you bless me. The angel of the Lord said, okay, you're Jacob. But then he goes on to say, and he said, your name, verse 28, your name shall no longer be called Jacob. You shall no longer be a swindler. You shall no longer be a schemer. You shall no longer be someone who, he, who grasps the heel. But Israel, Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. The name Israel means prince who struggled with God and prevailed. Prince who struggled with God and prevailed. A prince is someone who's born into the blessing. Right? The prince is the king's son. The prince has done nothing to be into that position, in that stature, other than just being born into the king's family. Right? And so the angel of the Lord is telling, telling Jacob, look, you're born into this blessing. You don't have to do it in your own strength. You don't have to do it in your own struggle. You're born into this blessing. So receive it. Walk in it. Approach me as a prince. Approach me as someone who has stature, someone who has the right, someone who has the privilege, someone who has the ability to receive the kingly blessing. Do that, and you'll prosper. Do that, and you'll begin to walk in the fullness of what I intend for you. So let's contrast that, right? So we see Jacob then as, as an Old Testament figure, as someone then who looks at approaching God in his own strength and in his own performance, in his own blessing, as the, to receive the blessing. That's the way Jacob sees it. In the New Testament, turn in your Bibles, if you will, to John the 13th chapter. John the 13th chapter. And what we're going to do here is we're going to look into a very intimate situation, a very intimate setting. This is a place where Jesus on the night before he goes to the cross, is having a Passover supper. He's celebrating the Passover supper with his disciples, right? And so they're gathered around the table, and they're reclining at the table, okay? They're reclining at the table. In those days, when you celebrate the Passover, or really any time you were eating, what you would do is you would lay down on your side. There would be pillows. You would lay down. Your feet would be extended back behind you, and you would basically be reclining to eat. Sounds like a pretty good way to watch a football game. Isn't it? You know, so hey, there, eat and recline, but they, they would recline back. And in this particular, this particular passage, we see John the Revelator, the disciple John. And what we see is his position, 
His posture is unique and different from all the other disciples, from everybody that's there. Okay, look at John 13, uh, beginning in verse, uh, let's see, 20, 21. Yeah, John 13, 21. Everybody there? So when Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there was, leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. (laughs) By the way, who's the author? John. (laughs) John, he's writing about himself. (laughs) I love that. John's writing, well, he's one of these disciples. Jesus really loved this guy, you know. It's a disciple whom Jesus loved. You know, he refers to himself other places as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Like, I'm his favorite. I know it. I'm comfortable with that, right? And he's saying I'm, he was leaning on Jesus' bosom. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him, to John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, to ask who it was of whom he spoke. And then look at this, verse 25. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast... Leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now, I look at, we're looking into this passage for, for this purpose. John knew how to approach God. John recognized that the way to approach God is to lean into his bosom to be reclining with him there, his Lord and Savior. In an intimate moment, the disciple whom Jesus loved, right, is laying there into the, in, into the bosom of Jesus. And whenever Peter says, ask him who it is, John simply leans back fully into the face of Jesus. Can you imagine? <laughs> into the face of our Lord and Savior. Fully and says, who is it? In that posture, right, In that place where John is receiving from Jesus, he can feel the breath of God on him. He can hear the heartbeat of God, of Christ, right there. John was so intimate in his relationship with Jesus that he was fully comfortable leaning back into the bosom of Jesus. Later on, we see in in John's life, that he's the one at the crucifixion who Jesus turns and says to, to his mother, Mary, Mother, woman, behold your son. Jesus bestowed the responsibility and the privilege of tending to his own mom to the disciple whom he loved, to John. Later on, John lives. A, John is the only disciple who doesn't die a martyr's death. Did you know that? Nero tried to boil him in oil <laughs> later on. He was unsuccessful. He was unscathed. Later on, another emperor sends him to the Isle of Patmos, right, to try to exile him. Can't kill this guy, so we're just going to have to get rid of him. So they send him to the Isle of Patmos, this prison island. And that's where John receives the revelation of the glory of the Lord, right? He was the one that wrote the book of Revelation. He also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. But he... He wrote the book of Revelation. John knew how to approach the Lord to receive from him. As a result of that, he had an intimacy. He had a revelation. He had a relationship beyond that of any other disciple that walked with Jesus. 
really beyond any other biblical figure that we know of, John had a greater level of relationship and intimacy and revelation than anyone else. So what do you think the key to that was? John was comfortable approaching God from a position of intimacy. John approached God with a level of expectation. God approached, or John approached God with an understanding of covenant and the fact that I am a beneficiary of that covenant beyond anything I have to struggle with or any performance or anything that I have to do. Right? So, how do we do that? Right? How do we transform our life? How do we become the disciple whom Jesus loved? How do we have that level of expectation? Well, let me, let me talk about three ways, three components to approaching Jesus like John, right? Three components of setting aside the performance, setting aside the struggle, and instead moving into the relationship with God and receiving from Him. Number one, we need to recognize that God loves us even with our imperfections. You know, I like the, the illustration, we're a bunch of cracked pots, right? We really are. We're broken vessels in which God has placed this treasure, but we need to recognize that God loves us even with our imperfections. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says, I will boast in my weaknesses, I will boast in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may be evident in me. If we walk around in our own independence, if we walk around in our own strength, if we walk around in our own self-sufficiency, how's Christ glorified in that? He's not. But instead, if we embrace our imperfections, if we embrace our weaknesses, and we recognize that in our weaknesses, His grace is made complete, then we begin to know that we can approach God in that way to receive from Him. Right? So the first thing we do is we recognize God loves us even with our imperfections. The second thing is we realize that because of Jesus' work on earth and on the cross, we are called to rest in His provision. We're called to rest in his provision, not to struggle. The opposite of struggling is resting, right? Hebrews 4 says, There remains therefore a rest for the people of God, right? For he who has entered his rest has himself ceased from his works as God did from his. So God doesn't intend to us to rework everything that Christ did on the cross. He intends for us instead to receive that as an impartation, to rest in the finished work of Christ, right? To do that is to try to add more to salvation, to add works to salvation, and that never glorifies God. Here's the last thing, the third key to approaching God, and we're just about done, is to do so boldly with an expectation that he wants to bless his children to approach him boldly with an expectation that he wants to bless our children. Jesus says in Matthew 7, Of what man among you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Right? That's Matthew 7, 9. Hebrew 4 says, Let us come boldly into the throne of grace to obtain help and mercy in time of need. The Bible teaches us over and over again that the way to approach God is in our imperfections. It's in our weaknesses. 
but with an expectation and an understanding that we're beneficiaries of that covenant. That when we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, the veil is rent in two, and we walk into that throne of grace as princes and princesses, as children of the king who stand in a stature, who stand in a position, who stand in the righteousness of God in Christ so that we might then receive everything that he intends for us. Okay? This is the last scripture, and this is, I really am closing for the, for the last time. I'm closing for the last time. Okay? Turn, turn to Matthew 11. I think this will come up on the, on the screen. This will be a familiar passage to you, but it really sums up everything that we've been saying right here. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Okay? Matthew eleven twenty eight. This is Jesus' instruction to us. Here's what it says. Come to me, come to me, Jesus, here's your instruction. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Right? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It took Jacob a long time to find rest for his soul. But he does find it. In this passage after Genesis 32, and we see later on in his life, Jacob begins to refer to God not as the God of Abraham or the God of Isaac, but he begins to refer to God as the God of Israel, my God. In fact, later on in chapter 35, he builds an altar, and he names that altar El Elohe Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. My God. Interestingly enough, God begins to refer to himself after Genesis 32 as not just the God of Abraham or the God of Abraham and Isaac, but as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And many times refers to him as the God of Israel. So Jacob got blessed, but he walked with a limp for the rest of his life for a reminder that he approached God in his own struggle and his own performance. John, on the other hand, simply leaned into the bosom of Christ and received everything that God intended for him. Amen? Okay. Paxton, if you guys will come. Would you all please stand? And if the, if the uh, altar ministers would also come forward. I just want to pray right quick over you, and, and then um, we'll just go to a, a place of invitation. But, Father, we come to you now in Jesus' name, and we thank you, Lord, that we can come boldly into your throne of grace and obtain help and mercy in time of need. Lord, we thank you that through Jesus Christ, the door's been opened to us. The veil has been rent into. We come into your, into your throne room with expectation. I pray, Lord, blessings upon this congregation, upon every household that's represented here. I thank you, Lord, that you remind us to come with an expectation and a hope of everything you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.